Let me just welcome everyone again here this morning. Welcome to our new members. I think you've taken a huge step in, in becoming a member here. Um, it's something wow, a little bit of <laughs> it's something that my wife and I had done several years ago, several decades ago now when I think about it, right? Over two decades ago and never regretted it. So how many people have been following the news about all the UFOs lately? <laughs> have you seen that? Right? Uh, the State Department came out with some official document that said and acknowledged that there were UFOs that the government was looking into. Don't be confused. They didn't say it was, you know, little green men and from outer space. <laughs> They're objects that they need to look into. But I think the more startling news was they said that they've been looking into these for about 70 years. Right? Now, it was always a thing of lore where people would say, oh yeah, the government knows. Right? Area 51. <laughs> all the study, everything else. Alien abduction. You had all this sensational thing. Alien autopsy. Anybody remember that? <laughs> you probably can tell by now, but I'm somewhat of a science fiction nerd. <laughs> And back in the 1950s, I think it was the UFO phenomena that really kicked off, right, all of that science fiction. And that's led to these decades upon decades of just spectacular stories in my book, right, from a, a science fiction standpoint. And these spectacular stories are ones that can be captivating to you, right? They're always filled with alien technology, things that we don't see within this world on a regular basis, things of dreams, right, that are so different from our world. So that sort of inspired me today to talk a bit about this alien love. And if you think we're going to be talking about probes and little green men, I hate to disappoint you. Right? That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the alien love of God as basically stated and described in 1 John 3, 1 to 3. Now, nearly everyone, if I said God's love is amazing, would agree with me. Right? And you would easily agree, but would your understanding of that statement be exactly the same. You know, I dare to say that we have enough people in here that we would have several maybe different understanding of what it would mean to say God's love is truly amazing. One person may say there can't be hell because God loves everyone enough not to send anyone to eternal suffering and torment. Another might say, God's love is accepting. He loves me just the way I am. And that same person could take license to practice sin or lie when convenient or to not love their brother or to spread discontent and slander among their families and others in the church. Yet another would say, God's love must be earned. Right? And they'll spend a life of constant striving, endless toil, and harsh condemnation of others, and more importantly, themselves. When they over and over and over again fall short of God's law. 
And possibly the worst example that I could think of is a person who says, God lo God's love is amazing. Maybe they even sing that song, right? God's love is amazing, steady and unchanging. Right? You love that song. You sing it every Sunday. You sing it all during the week. Right? You sing it in your heart, but you don't really believe it's amazing. You've kind of come to that point where, oh yeah, it's the love in the Bible. Right? It's the love of God. You almost take it for granted. You're not filled with wonder or admiration or awe. You aren't filled with curiosity, a willingness to be teachable, or a burning desire to learn more. In fact, this type of person I'm talking about, they aren't filled with utter gratitude and a feeling of humble privilege that comes with knowing how undeserving we are of this truly out-of-this-world love that God has for us. Now, the Apostle John was not one of these people. He contemplated the intricacies and wonderment of God's amazing love. Now, who better for us to learn from today than that beloved disciple of Christ? Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John 3, and we're going to go through verses, chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. Give you a second. For those who are just joining us, I always read from the ESV. Right? Your versions are going to say essentially the same. Right? They're all interpretations of the original languages that the Bible was written in. Okay? You'll find some Bibles in front of you if you didn't bring one today. But let's go. 1 John 3, verses 1 to 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Bow your heads with me and allow me to pray for you. Heavenly Father, as we look into your word today, help us to really look at its meaning deeply, maybe more deeply than we have at some other time in the past, or help us to recall that first wonderment and awe when we first came across this passage. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit would quicken it to our heart, that it would be deep and penetrating to who we are in you. Father, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I mentioned Lisa and I coming to the church two decades ago. I was looking at this over the weekend, right? 20 years ago. At that time, we had just come in. Our kids were just moving into that kindergarten and there was this occasion before we did, or right around the same time, right? Our kids were, were four about moving into five, where there was a special display that came to the Walters Art Gallery. Now, that special display was on Egyptian antiquities. 
And we were looking for a birthday present for my mother at the time. We call her Grammy. For those of you who know me and have heard me talk about her or others who happen to know my mother, you would know that the only thing that Grammy loves more than Ireland and all things Irish is ancient Egyptian antiquities. <laughs> you may go, whoa, ancient Egyptian antiquities. But we knew and wanted to give her a present that she would enjoy. So we decided to take her there. Being young parents ourselves, probably foolish, <laughs> right? My wife and I said, this would be a great learning opportunity to expose our kids to. Right? So we took our two four-year-olds with us at that time. Right? Yeah, some of you are laughing right off the bat, right? In hindsight, not really the greatest of ideas. <laughs> right? As we went into the exhibit, you come through this great doorway, right? After all the excitement, everything that comes with going downtown, parking, all the problems, getting your tickets, getting inside, you come to the exhibit on the floor and there's this great excitement, this wonderful doorway, right? You step through and there's a display case right in the way of a sarcophagus, just the head, headdress there. And some of you who know a lot about ancient antiquities, please forgive me for not using the right terms. But anyway, there's this headdress there. And what does my mother do, right? She stops. She looks at this headdress. Oh, how great that is. Then she moves over to this side and lets the light reflect off it on a different way, right? She kind of rolls around the back and gets real close and looks at it to see where maybe things have been hammered out in there, the workmanship, right? She goes around. She sees the little card there that they have in the display. She starts reading it about it. She gets her program that she's got. She reads more about it. Where was it? What was it in time? She's looking at a timeline. All of that. Right, because she enjoys it. She loves it. She really wants to know about that. What do our kids do? <laughs> right, they were gone like a rocket. I mean, we were like chasing after them right on by the stuff, right, just flying through the exhibit until what? Until they come up against something really weird and odd, right, like a mummy or a skeleton. Look, there's a skeleton, <laughs> right? And that lasts for about two minutes and then, whoom, they're all the way through. So our family chasing the kids, we were probably finished with this exhibit, meh, 15 minutes, <laughs> right? My mother, she would have spent all day in this exhibit, in the same exhibit that we ran by. But I tell you this to say how often, as I think about that time, that I've done that with the scriptures myself, right? I've just run by them. I go by, I don't pour over every word. I don't look at it from different angles. I don't try to place it in the timeline. I just kind of rock on through. And that's really what happens here in, I think, this verse in John. It can become very familiar to us. I know I've taken it for granted before at the time. And really, it is packed so full of information. And don't let me scare you away. Theology right within here, that it's an outstanding passage for us to stop slow down, ponder, and make sure we understand. So let's go through this in that way. And as we do, I want you to kind of take three angles at God's love, and I hope to show you today exactly these three aspects. The first aspect is that God's love is not of this world. Second aspect is that God's love is radically transformational. 
The third aspect is that God's love is completely comprehensive. Now, the first thing you may notice as we sit here and I say this is none of that really describes worldly love, does it? Now, I don't care how great of a person you are. Almost all of the love that we naturally give is based on some selfish aspect, right? We love those who love us easily, without much thought, right? You're most friendly with those who are friendly with you, right? We even say we love tacos, right? Why do we love tacos? Because we just love the way it tastes, Right? We wouldn't say we love tacos if we have to spit the meat out each time right? that we're eating a taco. So a lot of the love that comes natural to us is a love that's selfish. But we're going to talk about a difference here. So let's start with that not of this world. Right away, this verse, John uses this phrase. He says, see what kind of love. Now, I have bolded here this C. I said we could rush right by it. That word C in the original language is actually behold. Right? Sounds a little bit different, a little more rich than just C, right? Think about when we've heard behold in the Bible before. Right? Christmas is probably one of the best examples of that. Behold, right, the angels will say. Behold when there's something magnificent, magnificent and amazing that we should take notice of. Behold. That's how John starts. Behold what kind of love. The word in Greek originally is patapos agape. It's literally translated to a foreign love. Now to understand how this word would be used, foreign love, we have to think about sort of the context of the date and time. One of the things that the Romans of that date and time used to do quite frequently is conquer other nations, right? And when they would go conquer another nation and expand their territories, they would go from these faraway lands to conquer, and they would bring back all of these foreign oddities. And they would put them in a big parade and they would march in this parade to show off all their conquests, right? They come from northern Africa and bring things back. And imagine, if you will, someone who's sitting in there from the Middle East, and for the first time you lay your eyes on this creature in the middle of this procession. The creature has four long legs, right? The legs are so long that they're higher than your head, right? Then it has a small body, but then a neck and a head on top of it to go up higher than any of the cypress trees that you have in the area that you've ever seen, right? And this animal is spotted and orange. Now, all of us would go, oh, yeah, it's a giraffe, right? I can go see that at the, at the zoo. But imagine seeing that for the first time. You'd be, what is this, right? I had no idea that these type of things were on Earth, right? That's what the sort of sentiment that's involved here is. You know, there's one other place that this is used that really illustrates that well. And that is in Matthew 8, verses 23 to 27. 
It says, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we're perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. Then he rose, rebuked the winds and sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even winds and sea obey him? Now, put yourself in the place of these apostles. When they said, what sort of man is this, right? They were doubting Jesus' humanity because of his supernatural power. Right? What if somebody that you've been around with and hanging around with suddenly just yelled at the storm at the sea. You're out fishing with your buddies, and they just yell at the storm that's up. Be silent. Stop. And it does. Wouldn't you kind of look at that person a little differently? <laughs> You'd be like, where are you from? Right? Really, I don't know any humans that can do this. That's what John's saying here. Behold, what kind of love. This love that is so foreign, so new, it's never been encountered before. But John goes on, right? And he says uh, to, that God's love is radically transformational. And before I jump completely into that, I wanted to do something to drive home a little bit how different and not of this world the love of God is. The best way that I found to do that is to share with you today an illustration that John Piper gave to his church, right, up in Pennsylvania, uh, about the love of God. John said, suppose you're living in Rwanda or Burundi a few years ago. Close your eyes and imagine you're a little boy or a little girl playing in your village. And suddenly, you hear screams and running. And you turn to look for a familiar face, and all you see is angry, shouting men running towards you with machetes. You run as fast as you can and hide under a basket that your mother wove. And when you come out, everyone is gone or dead. Your mother is dead. Your father is dead. Your brothers and sisters are dead. You sob yourself to sleep on the body of your mother as the sun goes down. You wake up to realize that you are not only terrified that the enemy might come back, but that you are very thirsty and hungry. And it hits you that there is no one to take care of you or save you from the enemies or from the wild animals or from sickness. You're utterly alone. You find some bananas in a house, and you eat them. Another day passes. You don't have any idea what to do, and you begin to think, maybe I'll just die. Then you hear a sound and turn to see a tall man standing in the dirt square. He calls out to you in your own language and says, don't be afraid. I want to help you. Now you want to run, but there's no place to run and nobody to run to. 
He comes over to you and he pulls some bread out of his pouch and gives you some. You eat it. And then he gives you some water from his water skin. He says, I tried to stop them. And at this point, you notice the lacerations on his arms and his head. He says, if you come with me, I'll take care of you. I'm very sorry about your mother and father. I'll help you bury them. As you work together to bury the dead, you begin to talk to him. And you learn that he belongs to the tribe that slaughtered your village and family. You also learn that he and his little son were in the tribal meeting when the band decided to raid your village. They disagreed with the raid and they put themselves between their fellow kinsmen and your village. As a result, the band of raiders killed the man's son as he tried to protect your village. And suddenly, you feel an overwhelming sense that this man loves you. It cost him his son to try to save you. Not only that, it gradually comes out that your village has made horrible raids on his relatives in years past, and that your own father was an arch enemy of this very man and had tried several times to kill him. At first, that makes you very afraid. But then you realize that this man is trying to save you in spite of all this animosity between your tribes and families. And your sense of being loved becomes stronger. Hope starts to rise in your broken heart that maybe there would be life beyond the loss of your mother and father and brothers and sisters. You agree to go with the man, and over the next several months, you learn the almost unbelievable truth that this man has a university education from Oxford. He's a very wealthy businessman with homes in Burundi and London, and a sheep farm in Yorkshire, north of Leeds. You don't understand it all, but over time you learn that not only has he rescued you from death, but he is supplying all your needs beyond what you could have imagined. He takes you into his home in Burundi, and you take long vacations with him to London and the sheep farm. And with every new lavish gift you feel, more and more loved. He rescued you. It cost him a son's life in the process. You were part of a tribe that hated him and his father. And now... As the years go by, you become old enough to understand that on top of all of this, he has taken care of all the affairs for you to be his legal son. And you learn that he has signed over to you all his wealth as an inheritance. This is the kind of love that God brings to us. Most unbelievable from a story as we think about it, that somebody would be like that, do that. And yet, these are some of the situations that were going on with the racial cleansing that was going on in that area of the world not too long ago and still continues to this day. Right? But God's love, what he did for us, is so out of this world and different that it's radically transformational. 
John goes on, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The Father has given to us this, a free gift. He asks nothing in exchange. And it goes on and it says that we should be called children of God in the ESV. But if you look to the King James Version, I kind of like the way they say it there. They say, and we are made to be children of God. It's how they translate that word. Not just called, but we are made to be children of God. Because the Father loved and loves us, we are made to be children of God, and we are. Now, this is something interesting. This is not adoption, right? And we're coming out of a series where we've been really focusing on Paul and all the things that are going on sort of with him and his travels and others in Acts series that we did for so long. But this is a little different, right? This is John. I got to get you sort of out of some of those thinking of an adoption or a pure adoption that Paul would preach and talk to. This is John talking about a new birth. This is John talking about God's love making us someone new. The theological term is regeneration. I love what um, R.C. Sproul says about this. It says, it is critical to understand that regeneration is something that the Holy Spirit does that really and truly changes a person. It changes the very disposition of a soul. Now, the psalmist illustrates this in Psalm 139. He says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. You talk about the Psalms and how special they are. <laughs> right? We heard testimony about the Psalms and what they can do. One of the most sad things that I can think of is that the non-believer doesn't know that the things of God are wonderful. Let that sink in a second. Doesn't know how wonderful these things are. Romans 8.28 goes on to say that this love actually was there before time, right? It, it pre-existed before we did. It says, for those whom he foreknew, looking into the future, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of a son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And I know that this word predestination can cause some Christians to kind of trip up. But I would say that depends on how you think about predestination. If you think of predestination as everything you do, all of your actions are predetermined, you're like a robot, right? That's a wrong view, I would say, of predestination. Predestination used here means you were handpicked by God to end up at a destination. Your destination was determined ahead of time by him, not by you, by him. Right? God's love is really the reason for our existence. 
Think about that a second. All right. I love what R.C. goes on to say in the rest of his quote. He says, until our heart is changed by the Holy Spirit, we have no desire for Christ. Without that desire, we never will choose him. God must awaken our soul and give us a desire for Christ before we will ever be inclined to choose him. Look to Ephesians 2, verses 8 to 9, goes on. It says it's not our doing. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Love is transformational, and we've changed, and we're inclined with nothing to do from us. Right, that example I gave you of somebody that strives all their life just trying to earn God's love, you already have it. He's already predestined you. I love how it goes on in Ephesians, it says, so that no one may boast. Now, can we be real a second? Right, as my, own, my old Joan Rivers saying, I love that, right? Can we be real <laughs> as we go? Um, if you take a sober look at yourself, is there a compelling reason why God would choose you to be saved? When I look in the mirror and I shed all the stuff that the world tells me and I look at myself because, like you, you know yourself better than anybody else. Right? I know all my ugliness. I don't show it to you. I try to show you the best shiny parts. Right? The parts I dress up. Right? The parts that I've prepared for you to see. Right, my Instagram life, right, that's what I want to show you. But I know deep down inside, and you know deep down inside, the thoughts in your head, what's in your heart. Right? You know every fault that you have. Is there anything in you that really says you're so special that God would have chosen you? Right? We just read about the Apostle Paul. I can't hold a candle to the Apostle Paul. First Corinthians says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Can I get some quiet amens there? Right, you don't have to say it out. <laughs> right. How about uh, not many were powerful? Well, we like to think we're powerful, right? Maybe you manage five people at work. You're a lead. Right? I'm powerful, man. I got these people's hands right, and their livelihood in my hands. Maybe you manage 200 people at work, right? I'm a big wig, right? I got all this and I can do all these things for, with people. I got power. Yeah, you have power. But compare that to, say, the Speaker of the House. Compare that to the President of the United States. Compare that power to other powerful figures. I think he dimmed pretty quickly, right? Then it goes on, it says, not many were of noble birth. we have any kings and queens in here? All right, someone from England that migrated over? Huh? Maybe not. Not many of us were of noble birth. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So, if I'm honest... Yeah, I don't know how much I have to strive, and no matter how hard I strive, I, I might not become wise 
according to the world standard. I might not become that powerful, right, according to the world standard. But I could do foolish a week. <laughs> Anybody else there? <laughs> right? You could do foolish a week, and it's amazing. That's what God wants from us, right? He wants us to be foolish and weak before him and yield to him. Now let's move on to that second aspect of God's love for us today, that radical transformation. Verse 1b says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. God's love is radically transformational, and because of it, our values and priorities become so revolutionized by conformity to Jesus that we no longer fit in this world. Can I get an amen for that one too? Think about it, right? We are the oddballs. Everybody sitting in a seat, everybody going to church, you are the oddballs in the world because you've been changed. If you don't know God, right, you're probably going along in the world pretty easy. You're not odd. You fit in everywhere you're at. Right? Verse 1b says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. John 15, 18 and 19 goes a bit further to explain this. It says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I choose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There's a choice here. He made the first one, right? And then there's another choice that we make because of the inclinations change. If we choose the world, the world will love us. If you support sexual immorality, you support greed, you support self-love, you support universal permissive religion, everybody goes as long as you have great intentions. If you support critical race theory, if you support cancel culture, Right? The world will love you today. Absolutely. But support sex in the context of a loving biblical marriage between a man and a woman. Support generosity and tie to your church and the furthering of the gospel. Support a biblical worldview of humanity that we are all basically sinners until God changes us. Support that there is only one way to God through Jesus Christ. Right? Support, we are all God's children. Every life matters, even life in the womb. Right? Support amazing forgiveness, not because someone deserves it, but because someone needs it. And you were forgiven first, and the world will hate you for it. 1 Peter 2.11 offers encouragement, but also points out and gives us directions of how we're to be. He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners. What's that word, sojourners? A traveler, right? Someone just passing through. And exiles. What's exiles? Foreigners, right? Somebody who's not in their home right now. You're displaced, right? You're not where you're predestined to be, right? To abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, but how do we abstain? How do we resist? After all, right, we're just foolish and weak. Let's look at verse 3 for the last aspect of his love. It says, God's love is completely comprehensive. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself 
as he is pure. It's completely comprehensive as in he could have just saved us, right? He could have just adopted us, right? We're not going to hell, and he's adopted us. He could have just gave us a brother in Christ, given us the universe. Every single thing is remarkable. Just save me from hell would probably be good enough right off the bat if you think about it. The rest of the stuff, bonus, right? But he goes all the way in remaking us. He starts by setting us apart. We know that as sanctification or progressive purification, right? And he lets us be involved in that. Now, how does he do that? Look at this quote from Calvin. And I did find a color picture. In case you don't know who John Calvin was, he's, he's, he's basically called the, the father of the reformers. <laughs> However, he's one of those guys so old, we don't have a real picture of him. <laughs> it's just a painting. Right? So I found a color painting picture of him, but it's, he said, so long as we do not look beyond the earth, we are quite pleased with our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue. We address ourselves in the most flattering terms and seem only less than demigods. All right, so let me illustrate by comparison. Jerry Springer. <laughs> Anybody have a guilty pleasure? Everybody ever watch that show? How do you feel about yourself after watching even 10 minutes of that? <laughs> right? Rush Limbaugh once said, it's an endless parade of human debris, is how he, he described that show. Right? And you think about it, and these are people that mostly through fault of their own, because it's so wide open, you can see, right? But and sometimes no fault of their own, are born in the circumstances, have things that make us feel better about ourselves, because by comparison, we look great. But that's not what's meant to happen. And God's love, when we have that and he changes us, that's our new standard. How do we look to that standard? Not so good. You start realizing you're the Jerry Springer guest at that point in time. Matt Chandler, pastor of a church in Texas, basically goes on and he elaborates by saying, grace-driven effort is violent. It's aggressive. The person who understands the gospel understands that as a new creation, his spiritual nature is in opposition to sin now. And he seeks not just to weaken sin in his life, but to outright destroy it. In his book, I love Chandler says, and it's so timely for us today, he says it's kind of like antibodies fighting infection. (laughs) Right? We can identify with that. As God comes in and the Holy Spirit comes in and dwells us, we have violent reactions to sin. That doesn't mean that we will withstand under that temptation all the time. And in that case, we repent, we return. But what it means is you feel that change and that reaction right away. Being honest, we know. We know when we sin. Right? Those who are saved, you know exactly when you sin. And, and there's a sin of omission and a sin of commission. Right? And, and the omission you pro- kind of get. That's where we should have done something that we just didn't do. We kind of give ourselves a pass on that a lot. Right? That's, that's not that bad. Right? We omit doing what God wanted us to do. And then there's the sin of commission. Well, that one we know darn well that we're not supposed to be doing this or we're sinning. And we do it anyway. Either out of weakness out of rebellion, out of just wanting what we want, but we do it, right? And yet the spirit within us 
riles up like an antibody. We have a violent reaction to that. We get sick about our sin if you're saved. And what do we do? You repent. And it says if you repent, if you turn back to him, he's faithful. And he'll accept that. Right? And he'll bring you forward. So amazing is his love. John Piper, who I read his one quote here, said, Knowing the truth in our minds and holding fast to it in our hearts as a treasure is a key to holiness. Now, I love this that I put that up there because a lot of us can get confused. And what we do is we tend to focus on that sin when we should be focusing on God. Right? So in those times of weakness or in those times of rebellion and things that we have, when we have that violent reaction like an antibody from our spirit and we know that we've done wrong, oh, we can just ruminate on that sin. Right? We could take that sin and start to let it permeate us and say, yeah, I'm not a good Christian. Right? I'm not worthy. Uh, I'll never get this stuff right. You know what? I'm just going to go along with the things of the world. Yeah. Don't go there. Piper says the key is not that we focus on that sin, but that we focus on God. Knowing the truth in our minds and holding fast to it in our heart as a treasure is a key to holiness. If your gateway to sin is money, when you love God more than you love money, you master that. If you struggle with addiction... Your answer is to love God more than that drug. When you struggle with racism and hate for your fellow man, fall in love with God and his character and watch the racism melt away. Love God with all your heart and mind and soul and essentially you'll have no time No appetite, no foothold, and no tolerance for sin in your life. Spurgeon said it this way. He said, I believe the holier a man becomes, the more he mourns over the unholiness which remains in him. Amen. Lord, I wish that we were all that way. I wish that I was that way all the time. Last part. And the worship team, if you have a final song, can start making their way to the stage. The last part is that God's love is completely comprehensive. Verse 2 says, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. God's love is completely comprehensive because he goes further than just telling us what to do and remaking us so we're inclined to do it and giving us the Holy Spirit as a helper to point out when we're not doing it. The Apostle John points out that God assures us or gives us a written guarantee in the form of his inspired scripture that we will finish the journey. I like how Spurgeon puts this as well. He says, there is no man in this world chosen to go to heaven apart from being made fit to go there. That's a wonderful thing that we can wrestle in. Right? I'm foolish and weak. (laughs) You're foolish and weak as well. And it's not my strength that gets me to heaven. It's knowing that he will get me to that place he's already foreknown and predestined me to be. That's where my trust lies. Romans 6, to 23 says, But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to God, 
the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our three aspects of God's love, hopefully you've seen that today in maybe a different way. Just like my mom sitting there looking through her sarcophagus in the beginning, I hope that you've taken, enjoyed, and can revel in the fact that we spent time looking at this from all different angles. Right? God's love so different from the love that we would just know naturally in the world because it's a love that's not of this world. It's a love that's radically transformational. And it's a love that's completely comprehensive. Now, before the worship team takes us out on the last song, if you don't know God's love today, my wish, my prayer is that you would come to know that, that you would be like that person that the psalmist says that recognizes how wonderful all God's works are and that your soul would recognize that. But how do you do that? Right? If you hear my voice today, maybe you're just watching us online or you're sitting out here today. What I'll do is I'm going to pray for us you mean this prayer in your heart, and that'll set you on your path. Okay? So let's everyone bow your heads. And whether you're recommitting today, making that U-turn, asking God to forgive you for things that you did, or whether you are just coming to know Christ for the first time, I want you to pray this prayer in your heart. Heavenly Father, I'm a sinful person. Uh, I really am foolish and weak. Uh, I think that I'm wise in my ways. Uh, I, I think that I have power over my own life. And Father, when I like search my life, I find out that I'm friends with the world in many ways that I don't want to be. Father, I want your amazing love. I want your love to come in and transform me. I believe that your son died for me on that cross so that he would pay all the debt for me, and that you freely give me this gift today that I can come to you. Father, will you help me cast aside my own rights to my own life and become a slave to you? Father, I confess you as my Lord today, and I confess that I want to live the rest of my days in wonderment, learning how wonderful your ways are, and have a relationship with you that starts now and continues on through all eternity. Father, I love you. Thank you for sending your son to die for me. And it's in his name that I ask this prayer. Amen.